Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Every day, like invisible breadcrumbs, we leave trails of personal data scattered across the digital landscape. Each click, every search, every purchase, they all tell a story about us. But do we know where these breadcrumbs lead? Who's picking them up? And most importantly, what are they going to do with them? In an era where data is documenting our lives across a host of platforms, understanding these trails and their implications is no longer a luxury, but rather a necessity. It's about your privacy, your rights, and your well-being in an increasingly interconnected world. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, John Thompson and I dive into his newly released book that should be on everyone's reading list called Data for All. During our discussion, we'll delve into the eye-opening insights that John shares in his book, such as understanding the scope and consequences of companies manipulating and exploiting our data. We also explore the step-by-step guide he provides on how to navigate this challenge. Let's get to it. Here's John. John Thompson, welcome back to Leaders of Analytics for the third time. Is it really the third time? Oh my gosh, I thought it was only the second. Well, well, thank you, Jonas. I'm so glad to be here. Well, that's a good sign because it, as they say, time flies when you're having fun. So uh, I think that's the podcast version of the same thing. And we keep having you back for two reasons. One, because I love our conversations and listeners love our conversations. But secondly, because you keep writing books and you keep having more to add to the discourse. So that's a wonderful thing. And today we're going to learn more about your new book, which is on a very important topic. And I shouldn't talk about it. You should. So tell us about this new book you have called Data for All. What's inside the book and why did you write it? Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to return. I'm so glad to be here. I always enjoy our conversations as well. And I'm pleased to hear that the listeners do too. Yeah. I wrote data for all because I really felt that most people, non-technical people didn't really understand what was going on with their data. And I just felt that data was so important and I continue to feel that data is so important that we really need to be aware of what's happening to that data, how we're creating it, who has access to it, what they're doing with it, and what's going to happen with data in the near future. You know, the EU has passed some significant laws 
Australia is really out on the front of regulating and helping people gain value from their data and protect their data. So I really felt that it was an important book to get out there just so everybody, your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, everybody could have a a nice, simple, easy book to read to understand the power and the importance of data. Yeah, and data can be very good for us, but it can also be very evil in the wrong hands. And it it really is this, it's almost like it's not quite encoding your DNA, but it's uh, (laughs) encoding your life and sprinkling it around the internet. It's a common problem. So because when you talk about data, you're not just talking about someone's birth date or residential address. Before we get into the, the meat of the book, could you clarify for listeners what the term data covers in this instance? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. There's one part of the book that almost everybody refers to. Everybody talks about this. I decided that I would take a real world example of two days and I would document every piece of data that I created over those two days. So it was a journey my wife and I took from here in Chicago, where we live, to Michigan, where our daughter was going to school at the University of Michigan in in Ann Arbor. So everything we did over that two days from getting up in the morning, to brushing our teeth, to getting in the car, to pumping gas, to checking our phones, to texting our daughter, everything that we did over that two days, I documented what data streams we created and who ended up with that data. And everybody's like, oh my, I had no idea that those normal daily activities We're generating that much data and that much activity. And people knew at such a granular level what I was up to. So that's what I'm talking about is that if you're driving an electric car, more than likely the manufacturer of that car knows where you are, knows how fast you accelerated, know how fast you braked. They know where you stopped. If you're driving a petrol car, they know where you got gas. They know what ads you saw on the pump. They know when you went in and if you bought a a soda or a pop or a bag of chips, you're generating data pretty much all the time. You are. And we're doing it not on purpose, but also sometimes we're doing it by putting our lives out on the internet, right? So social media and so on, which is maybe where people are more aware of it. But yeah, you can really string together someone's life reasonably easily if you've you've got access to all this sort of data. And you are really wanting us to care more about our personal data that's obvious from this book. What are the general behaviors that you're seeing that concern you? Well, I I don't think people realize that, you know, just by carrying your phone around and leaving location services on, you're constantly generating data. So, you know, if you're you know, if that data is going to Google or if it's going to AT&T or if it's going to Telstra or whoever, that's the kind of data that you're passively generating it and you really aren't aware of it. You know, people are generally aware that they're posting on Facebook or Insta or, you know, they're going out and, and doing something on an app or ordering food or calling Uber or Uber Eats or whatever. When people do those active actions, I think at some level, most people know they're generating data as a byproduct of their actions. I'm trying to open it up so everybody understands that passive data generation as well. And then I want people to be aware that this data is a raw material that's used by many of these companies. The One of the scenarios I lay out in the book is that, you know, if you were to build a house, 
that there's no builder in the world that I know that could get away with taking the wood for free to build your house. And people go, what do you mean? And I say, well, Meta, Facebook, Insta, Google, all these companies could not be as profitable as they are if you didn't give them all your data for free. So they're monetizing, you know, these billion dollar companies are monetizing your data. So wouldn't you prefer to have some of that money coming to you? And often people look at me and say, I could get paid for my data. And, and that opens up a really interesting conversation. If a platform is free, it's likely that it's because you are the product and someone else is paying. <laughs> so that's what's happening in that case. And I personally have dumped everyone but one social media platform, which is LinkedIn that I still use, but the other ones uh, I don't use. I'd like to say that part of it is, is this reason. Uh, it is. Uh, it's also for mental health. I think it's, it's terrible to actually sit there and scroll on these things. But still, I'm not really avoiding the handing over of my data to some of these typically Silicon Valley mega corporations and then my local telecommunications company as well. So I still have a Gmail address and Google probably knows everything about me if they wanted to. And who knows what they're doing with it. But it is so hard to actually avoid this stuff. Could you sort of give us a, maybe a, a concrete example? You said you, you yourself documented your journey, but give us a, a concrete example or, or examples of how our data is being used once it leaves our digital devices and why should we care about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. One of the things that you know I worked on over the last, I guess it was two years ago, three years ago, maybe now, is that we built an application in my previous job where we bought a lot of location data from Google. And we were using that to understand demographics, understand travel times, understand, you know, all sorts of things. And I was thinking about that and I'm like, all these people are generating that data to Google, giving it to them for free. And they don't know that. And I'm, as a corporate citizen, buying that data and Google's making a lot of money off it. So, you know, I tried to do this and, and, and I'm no Luddite. I'm not telling everybody to throw their phones away and get off apps and all this other kind of stuff. I'm not, that's not my message. My message is you just should be aware of what you're doing. And I, like you, I use LinkedIn. And then there's a feature that posts my LinkedIn posts off to Twitter. I never go on Twitter. I mean, it's just one of those things. I click a button, it goes to LinkedIn, it goes to Twitter. So I use both, but I never go on the Twitter platform. But I'm just trying to tell people that you should be aware of what you're doing. If you're okay with that, then that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You know, you you said you have a Gmail account and you for some reason, or you, you, you find utility in that. Google knows all your emails and things like that, and you're okay with it. As long as you're making conscious choices, I'm good with that. But I want everybody to be making conscious choices. So back to the location data and the travel data and all that kind of stuff with Google is that, you know, that's passive data that you're giving to them. You're generally, most people are not aware that they're doing it. So if you have your mobile phone, you know, and you have your location services on when you're driving around, you're actually providing Google information about drive times from point A to point B. Do you really want to do that? I mean, I tried for a month to turn off location services and, and it was really painful because every time you wanted to use a map function, every time you wanted to find a business, it's almost impossible. So use these services, but be aware of what you're doing. Yeah. And I think for me that that means be aware of how 
these services are recording your data, but also given that that's the case and it's actually very hard to avoid, the companies behind them, are they ones that you would actually want to have that information? So who who is your email provider? Who is your provider of uh, XYZ services? Is that a company that you, you trust today and you think is, is likely to be a, a trustworthy company in the future? I mean, this is the hot political debate as well about the, uh, the Western world is scared of, of Chinese companies and Russian companies and so on for this very reason that the, all this data is is being collected and everyone can say we won't use it, but you don't really know. And sometimes it's not even used on purpose, but oops, we used it for a purpose we shouldn't know, that we shouldn't have, and uh, now we know all this stuff. So it, it, it really is something that I, I personally spend a lot of time on as well. I often put my phone on flight mode when I go certain places to kind of block that but i mean even when you think about that there's a chance that that's not even enough because even if if my phone's recording me 50 percent of the time it can probably infer a lot about me so you're right the more we're aware of it the the better absolutely so we talk about this data here and we're giving it away for free but it obviously has a lot of value and if you go well yeah, but it must be not that much. If you look at the top 10 biggest companies in the world by market capitalization, you'll find uh, Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, uh, companies that all do this stuff and they all get free data and they turn it into massive value. So if you want any bigger proof, then that's there, right there. The biggest companies in the world have built their entire business model on this, on our data that we create. So is there a world where we should get paid for the use of this data that we actually create with our behavior? Or is that a pipe dream? No, I, I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think it's coming. You know, it's not here yet. And in here in the United States, it's it's further away than it is for the citizens of the EU. You know, the EU is doing a really good job in passing GDPR six years ago. They passed the Digital Markets Act, the AI Act recently. You know, there's three or four other acts that have to do with data. And these acts actually pave the legal and regulatory way for the creation of, of data exchanges. Now, this is a concept that it's hard for some people to get their heads wrapped around, but they are going to be middlemen, middle people. You know, I don't want, I want to be politically correct, but, you know, they are going to be in the middle of the data ecosystem. And what is going to happen is that we as individuals will be able to go to these data exchanges and register there and say, all my browsing data or all my telephonic data or all my location data or all my purchase data, you know, whatever you want to categorize and classify, you can then put a monetary value on it. So when companies like Meta and Google and Amazon want to use that data, they'll have to refer to the exchange. They'll have to look up your preferred monetization rate and make a decision if they want to use your data or not. And people go, oh, that's crazy. That'll never happen but it will happen because it is happening now. So, you know, there will be two or three of these in the United States, two or three in Europe, one in Africa, a couple in Asia, probably three in Asia, one in Australia. I know Australia is part of Asia, but so, you know, it will happen. And then people immediately say, well, how much money will I really make? 
So I took myself as an example, and I don't have many apps on my phone for all the reasons that we've discussed. I use three most of the time. And I went through and I did the calculation. If I monetize my data along the lines of like, you know, song royalties, like a penny or two pennies or a half a penny or whatever, one likely I'd get paid about $1,600 a year for my data. Just if I was any other regular person, not if I was an influencer or anything like that. But $1,600, you know, some people go, oh, well, that's not that much money. And I'm like, well, if I put $1,600 in front of you on a table and you didn't have to do anything more than you did now, you wouldn't pick that up. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, 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 I would. And I'm like, okay. And then other people make the argument. They're like, well, then, you know, you may have to pay for your Gmail. I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe. I mean, my wife uses Google's storage and she pays 99 cents a month for, I don't know, huge amount of storage. So if Google wants a dollar a month for Gmail and you get paid $1,600 a year, I think that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, and they do also, uh, Google and others, they do start charging you once you've filled up the, the bucket too much. So it, it, it kind of already is there. I'm often uh, about to breach that because I'm storing a lot of podcasts in the class. So <laughs> one day I'll have to start paying. So that's a really interesting concept. And I like your analogy of these sort of music royalties or, you know, the, the small um, cents or, or uh, portions of cents that we might get for our, our days and that it actually quickly adds up. And we've seen some attempts to do this around the world. And I think they're, they're very, very well made attempts, but they are, they've not really taken off. And what I described specifically is some of these regimes called open data regimes, uh, which has been tried around the world in several jurisdictions. So the UK is probably the most advanced. Um, Australia's got its own uh, regulation around it. It hasn't really taken off the way I would have expected it. But these sort of open data ideas, they promise that it'll make our lives a lot easier because you can centralize information, you can audit between services. So if you need to get a loan with one bank and you have all your data in another bank, you can push a button and they can share the data in a safe way. But also it's, I suppose, seemingly safer because there's a, there's a pipe there that's connected in a, a, the safe rails for the data to travel on. And the way that it's sold to the consumer is, and therefore we will have more competition and you will get your products and services for cheaper than you are now because there's not this... I suppose, little hurdle to get over that you often have to, in, in the example of banking, for instance, you have to show them your uh, transaction statements or what have you. Now, how do you think we should think about the open data concept in this conversation? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Or how do we turn it into a good thing and not, never a bad thing? Yeah, and, and I, I think the open data concept is a great idea. And I think it's foundational from a conceptual and, and a definitional perspective of what we're talking about here. You know, those initiatives never really had the weight of law. They never had any way to compel people to do it. You know, I think the the regulation that's, that's now been passed and is on the books and is soon to be put into force in the EU is, is what we're going to see around the world. When GDPR was passed, you know, those five, six, well, six or almost seven years ago now, Everybody, at least in America, was, you know, oh, this is terrible. It's going to be the end of marketing and all this kind of stuff. And it's going to be bad, bad, bad. 
well, what do we have now, you know, these six or seven years on, we have many countries around the world copying GDPR. There are seven U.S. states that have laws that are very similar to GDPR now. And I bet in five or six years, we'll have all those same laws from the EU around the world in various countries and various U.S. states. So the wave of regulation that's going on now, the wave of laws that are coming into force are going to compel people to be parts of these. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you're not going to get a majority of the population to do it. We don't need a majority of the population to do it. What we need is a very informed minority. You know, if all the people that listen to this podcast are the people who have an orientation towards the way this podcast is thinking and putting out ideas, if all of those people sign up for data exchanges, that will make a difference in the world. And then there's there's a bias in, in there's always a bias in the world. But the people like Meta, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they want data from people who have money and we have money. So if we pull all our data out of the ecosystem, they're going to follow us. And, you know, it's not that you have to go out and, and make a million dollars off your data. Some people might. It's hard to say. But, you know, like, you know, Led Zeppelin, I think those guys live quite nicely and I think they get paid a half a penny every time the Stairway to Heaven gets played or any of their other songs. So, you know, as you said earlier, small amounts of money can add up quite quickly. Yeah. And if you got the equivalent of $1,600 a year for the, your whole life, that would uh, that would actually add up. So I think there's something to it. I'd like that money because I'm producing the data anyway. So I, I agree with your point. John, one thing I'm sitting here reflecting on is the last call it 20 years, we've started producing more and more and more data as a byproduct of our behavior, simply because everything's been digitized and we can now sort of measure everything that's being being done in a digital format. And everyone, individuals and corporations alike have excitedly then jumped on the bandwagon of cloud storage. So... I talked about my Gmail account that's in the cloud. Lots of services that you get online are in the cloud. And corporations around the world have moved their data stacks and their enterprise technology to the cloud because it's got this elastic compute and elastic storage. And therefore, we'll never have to worry about buying new servers and running out of disk space and all that stuff again. So... I often think it's a bit of a drug almost because we've now given almost all the world's information to, at least in, in the parts of the world that we live in. I'm sure in, I talked about Russia and China, for instance, in those parts of the world where there's a, there's a bit of a political divide, they probably have uh, some other equivalent of the same. But most of the disinformation is now in the hands of Amazon, Microsoft, and Google because they're the big three cloud providers. Have we created a problem here for ourselves by handing over all this proprietary data to very few mega, mega tech firms? And if so, what's at stake for for everybody with that? It's it's not optimal, that's for sure. But, you know, these platforms are ubiquitous and lots of people use them. I use them. You know, I, we have an Amazon account. We buy lots of things off Amazon. So, you know, I browse Google all the time and, uh, you know, there's lots of data in those big three for sure. That's not going away and that's not going to change. But, you know, the new laws that are coming out, 
force them to, in the future, allow us to manage our data differently. You know, in the EU, there's the right to be forgotten. And, and that's a real thing. So if you go to any company and say, I want you to delete all my data, they have to do that. So that is going to happen around the world in more and more countries. And then as we get to the future, the three to five year future that I talk about with data exchanges and we put in our monetization schemes, then, you know, that's going to change. So on one hand, it's not the greatest thing in the world to have that data concentrated there. On the other hand, it's actually going to make the the future of our personal data monetization easier for us. Mm. Yeah, it's such an interesting challenge that we have now. I'm just reflecting on it here, John, because we now also have the advent of generative AI becoming really mainstream. And in theory, you could actually generate more information about a person if you have enough knowledge about them already. You can almost generate what they would respond to, what they would do, what they would say uh, in a very realistic fashion. So it's already happening. Right? There's uh, these uh, deep fakes that are used for famous people. You, you see, uh, I don't know, uh, Barack Obama, someone talking in a YouTube video, but it's uh, it's fake. Or some of Joe Rogan's podcasts with uh, him interviewing people who aren't alive anymore and all that stuff. And th- that in theory can happen to not just these really famous people, but uh, anyone who has enough information out there and enough images of themselves and all that stuff. So we really need to be cognizant of this. This It's not just what is technically possible now, but what could someone do 10 years into the future if they somehow managed to get your, scrape your social media and all your silly videos of you dancing dancing on the beach and all that stuff and turn it into this sort of thing. I I was listening to a podcast the other day with, uh, it's called My First Million. It's sort of an entrepreneur's podcast. And uh, one of the guys there, put the business idea out as a challenge to anyone to to create the first agency for famous people to monetize their generated content that someone else had used the deep fakes on them so how do you how do you earn royalties on on that stuff so you can see it's already kind of great idea happening right it, it, i actually really liked it yeah it's a it, it is a great idea so at the end of all this we need to make more intelligent choices with our data and that is really what you're encouraging us to do. We need to understand how to do that, John. So could you give us a a good overview of what are the dimensions of doing that and how could we practically do that in our day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've talked about it, some of it already implicitly, you know, use as few apps as you possibly can. You'd still do the things that you want to do in your life and don't cut yourself off and don't try to become a hermit. But You know, if you're not really getting any value out of an app, then delete it, get rid of it. Don't have it on your phone because sometimes these apps are passively harvesting or generating data and you don't even know it. So, you know, I go through my phone and and I have the bare minimum apps on my phone that I need to, to do what I want to do. That's number one. Number two, if you can, you know, turn things off like a location services and not make it too painful in your life. That's a smart thing to do. Location data is the bedrock of many of these these companies' revenue streams and and a core part of what they analyze and how they understand who you are and what you do. Another thing that we do, and some people shrug and go, what does that make a difference, is that 
get on every do not mail list you possibly can. You know, we've cut down the physical mail that comes to our house by about 90%. You know, when we go to the mailbox, there may be one or two things in there every day. We don't get much junk mail. We don't get many catalogs. We don't really get anything of that that nature. And people say, oh, well, that's that's not really data. Well, it is very much data. So, and that data is sold around the world and sold many, many times. So you want to be out of that ecosystem as well. So, you know, I think those are the things that you can do on a daily basis that make things easier for you. And, and you said it implicitly earlier too, is that don't do business with people who don't have your best interest in mind. You know, Facebook is one of the worst companies in the world, as far as I'm concerned, about what they do with your data and what they care about civil society and, and those kind of things. And, you know, I mean, I had a Facebook account for about four years and the entire feed was happy birthday one year and nothing and then happy birthday another year and then nothing and then happy birthday in another year. So after about five years, I thought there's no real reason for me to be on this platform. I'm not using it. So. You know, I've always been a big believer in doing business with companies that align with my values. And and I think everybody should do that. Very wise. And I think there are two concepts to think about in terms of what can happen to your, da- your data when you're handing it over to someone. One is that the new owner of that data, say Facebook, can do stuff with it that you don't like. And if you actually look carefully, there have been really bad examples of experiments run. Uh, can we affect people's uh, mental health, uh, both good and bad, by feeding them different things in the in the newsfeed and so on? Right. So these are you know people who uh, might have a computer science degree somewhere that are playing with people's lives. It's a, it's a fun little experiment, and uh, they're picking a sample that is good enough for statistical significance and all this stuff, but guess what? There's actually someone's uh, life behind the scenes that you're you're affecting and uh, there's uh, some nastiness from that. And we, I had a podcast here last year, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, where we talked about the concept of data pollution. And this is where there's two kinds of data pollution. One is this effect of when you give data to an organization, it can use it to affect other things and and thereby create biases that perpetuate, which is a way of, of polluting the, the digital environment in a sense. Right? So your data about you can be used to drive other people like you down a, a path. It doesn't even have to be that it is their data. They can say, okay, John and someone else, they look alike. So therefore, we are going to only feed them stuff that John likes. That's how we start them off. The other one is akin to a digital oil spill. So this is where uh, this is data hacks or oops, we uploaded the wrong file to ChatGPT and now your your data is in there or whatever it might be, that sort of thing. And I I think they're important concepts for people to to reflect on that both are over time a risk and both can be be harmful as well. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com slash AI. Now back to the show. 
So, John, let's finish off by painting a little bit of a bright picture of the future here because it's not all doom and gloom. We just got to manage these things. What do we get if we do right by our data and ourselves? What's the positive outcome from this and what's required to make it happen? Well, the good thing about it is that you really don't have to do much right now other than the things we've already talked about. Cut down on your data exhaust, you know, use thing, work with companies that you agree with, get off all superfluous lists as, as fast as you possibly can. That's Those are all easy things to do you can do in your spare time. That's simple stuff to do. The whole idea of the data exchanges, that's going to happen. That's just naturally going to evolve over the next few years. And when it comes up and when you get an offer to be able to go out to a data exchange and sign up, you know, the data exchanges can't sell your data. You know, they're prohibited by law from selling your data. All they are is, is a middle organization between you and, you know, Amazon, Meta, all these other organizations, which allows you to control your data. So you can go in and say, do not use, you can opt out completely. I don't want them to use any of my medical records or any of my browsing data or my purchase data or my telephony data or my location data. Any part of that data ecosystem that you don't want to have someone using, click a button and you're out. That's all there is to it. But the other way, I, I don't encourage people to do that. I, I say that when it comes around to the point of where you can monetize your data, you know, put actually values in there. If you want to sell all your data, put a reasonable amount in there and the data brokers will tell you what everybody's selling their data for. And you can be part of that if you want to be. But I really like the idea that, you know, if you want to make it clear to the airline industry or the petrochemical industry or the forestry industry, what you think of them, put a price on your data of like a million dollars every time they touch it. That will send a message that you don't like them. And if they want to use your data, they have to pay an exorbitant amount for it. So there's lots of ways for this ecosystem to work for everybody. And, you know, you, you have different objectives. Some people will have privacy maximization ob objectives. Some people will have revenue optimization objectives. These, there are many, many objectives in this ecosystem. And there, these are ways for us to be able to voice our opinions and concerns to companies about how they're interacting with us. I think this is a great way for us to vote with our wallets or vote with our feet or vote with our presence. Yeah, and we're putting then some power back in the consumer's hands. Uh, and uh, I think what you're doing is the first step to that, which is awareness. Before we have awareness, we can't have concern and we can't have a focus and so on. So thank you for writing this book for society, John, really. And the, the way I think about this book is if you're a listener, and you think, oh, well, I, I know this stuff. I uh, I know about data and I know how it works and I know that this gets ported around. Well, guess what? This is the perfect gift for all the people around you who don't. And if you're like me, you know someone who has a, a, a slight Facebook addiction and likes to put all their stuff on there. I won't mention any names, but they, I have close family members that I have uh, uh, battles with all the time because we say we don't want our kids on there. Please don't take photos of them and put them on there. And for me, right? So those people that uh, maybe need to read these books and actually understand where their information's going and the trail of, of their life that they're leaving behind for everyone to see if they want to. John, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, but before we finish up, 
I want to give you the opportunity to step up on your soapbox and have any sort of last remarks around this topic to those who listen. So you can basically get out your small rant about how we should deal with our data, if there's anything we haven't covered already. Yeah. And thank you, Jonas. I always appreciate the opportunity to, you know, say, say my piece. And you, you said it well, you know, just before this in your remarks is that, you know, I've written three other books and I, and I affectionately call those nerd books, you know, for people in the analytics and, and AI and, and data space. And I wrote this book, not for that audience. You know, I wrote it for the general population. I mean, it is written as a primer for anybody who is non-technical to look at what they're doing in their day-to-day lives and how they're generating data. Because as we said, when we started here, I don't think most people, probably 95% or 99% of the population in the world don't understand this stuff. And that's who I wrote the book for. I didn't write it for you and me and, and the people that generally listen to this podcast. I wrote it for all their brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, aunts, and uncles. And, and I've given the book and nobody in my family is really technical. You know, my brother is a welder. My sister works in a retail store and I've given them both the book and they are my siblings, of course. So they read it, or at least they told me they read it. And, and they both came back and said, I had no idea. I really didn't know that that was what was happening. You know, when I was driving my car or getting gas or buying, you know, buying food or, or going on, on Facebook, you know, so I did it as a way for the world to be aware of what's happening now and what's coming in the future and how they can benefit from it. Yes. And thank you for that service to society, as I already said. Now, John, before we go, you have another book in the making. Are we allowed to talk about that here? Absolutely. Do you want to quickly mention what's coming up in a few months? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a, a collaboration with Judith Hurwitz. Many people know Judith. She's a, a luminary in the industry. And and we've written a book on causal AI. So, you know, generative AI is is all the rage. And you you talked about it earlier in this in this session. There's the traditional AI, machine learning, and and all those kind of things. But there's another branch of AI called causal AI. So all the things that in traditional AI is what happened. Generative AI is generating new things based on AI. Causal AI is why they happened. So my view is that we're going to have these three branches of AI. And, you know, causal AI is a very esoteric branch of AI at this point. There's only a few people in the world that are involved in it. There's been a whole branch of calculus that's been created to, to actually make it work in computer science and in, in applications. And I wanted to write this book because I wanted all the people who are involved in AI, I'm back to my roots of writing nerd books again. I wanted everybody in the AI industry to say, hey, there is another branch of it. And and the book is really an intro book for business executives and AI practitioners so they can come together and try to understand how they can expand their AI portfolios with causal AI technologies and applications. The book is coming out on October 3rd, and it's being published by Wiley. Great. Once a nerd, always a nerd. And I look forward to <laughs> I look forward to reading that book. It sounds right up my alley. John, I think we're at the end. Thank you so much for coming on again and sharing your knowledge with the world. 
a pleasure as always. And until next time, all the best with the sales of this book. And I'm sure we'll be talking about causal AI in the future on this podcast. Thank you, Jonas. Always a pleasure. I look forward to the fourth, probably in sometime in November. Hi, dear listener. Just a quick note from me before you go. If you enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes via your favorite podcast app. I have loads more great stuff coming your way. Also, I'd love some feedback from you on the show. So please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you soon.